Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Ted Price from Insomniac Games. Today, I had the good fortune to grab Tim Sweeney just after his DICE 2020 keynote. And we got to sit down and expound on some of the topics he touched on and cover many more. The first topic we touched on was the idea of an open metaverse where players have no barriers when it comes to playing with their friends on any platform whatsoever. And Tim spent some time explaining how that could happen and really how far away we are from that being a reality. We also talked about one of my favorite topics and that's digital humans. Tim explained where he thinks we are on the spectrum of photoreal and not photoreal. And it describes some of the things that Epic is doing to get us closer to a world where we can't distinguish between people in the real world and characters in our games. We talked about Epic culture, we talked about what makes Epic special in terms of how they make decisions. And finally, we talked a little bit about privacy and how many of us don't realize how much privacy is being stripped away by some of the larger companies outside of our industry who collect our data and use it. First, I hope you listen to the podcast because for me, it was a unique experience to be able to talk to Tim about so many different topics. But I'd also suggest that you check out Tim's keynote at Dice 2020. He covers these topics and more, and he goes into great depths about what we as an industry need to think about as we move ahead. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hey, Tim. (laughs) Hi, Dad. Thanks for having me. It it was so awesome to have been able to grab you you here at DICE. Uh, You just gave an amazing talk about what is going right and what's going wrong with our industry. And you, just to spoil the surprise for people, because hopefully everybody's going to watch this, you talked about your vision for the future of the industry as sort of an open metaverse at the very end of the talk. I thought that was inspiring. Can you talk more about... What you would love to see? Yeah, sure. You know, um, in the old days, gaming was a really solitary thing, right? You just decided to play a game. It was just you. Nothing else mattered. Um, But increasingly now, people are deciding to get together with friends, and then with their friends, they're deciding what to play. And they're doing that on Discord or TikTok or in Fortnite or whatever. Um, And I think that's going to be increasingly the way that people get into games. It's not going to be this solitary experience, but it's going to be social groups moving from game to game. Um, as they go. Um, And so it becomes much, much more important for games to adopt really universal ways for players to stay together as a group and communicate. It would be terrible if you decided in one app to play this game and then you went into the other app and then you had to spend 10 minutes rummaging around to actually find each other and form a different party and a different system, right? So we we really, really need uh, to move towards shared 
interoperable systems for communication and friends and voice and accounts so that everybody can play together across all of these platform boundaries. Do you think that we've, as an industry, have been sort of turning a blind eye to that intentionally, or is that just arisen from the way we grew up developing games? Well, you know, there was a time when everybody thought that they were going to build, you know, the next big monopoly social platform and everybody was, you know, and they, everybody wanted to completely, you know, build their own walled garden and lock all their competitors out and they'd use it to their own business advantage. Um, but the result of all of those efforts is that you have like a dozen different social frameworks that involve games. You know, you have social apps like Discord and TikTok, um, you have games at a huge scale like Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft and then you have the platforms Xbox Live, PlayStation Network, Nintendo. And then you have Activision has you know has one and you know Take 2 has one and EA has one and so you end up with this industry that's been totally balkanized and I think everybody's come to the realization that they're not going to be the next big you know wall garden monopoly and everybody's coming to the realization that we should actually start connecting our systems together and make them talk um, you know, through standards and protocols so that, you know, gamers really can move from game to game seamlessly like that. That would be a wonderful future for gamers. And I, I know that I think a lot for those of us in the industry, sometimes it's hard to get over the, the thought that, well, maybe this makes less money or, but it doesn't. I think what you were, what you were saying was that, no, there's opportunity for all, probably bigger opportunities for all if we break down those walls. Yeah, you know, this was this whole principle was realized in the 1980s by Bob Metcalf, who invented Ethernet. I think it was actually the 1960s. Um, Metcalf's law says that the value of a network is proportional to the number of people you know who you can connect to, right? And this is why Facebook grew to such popularity. Um, and this is why gaming is kind of stuck in the doldrums. It's because there are a dozen different networks, they're not connected, and on each one you can only connect to a subset of your friends. It's really high friction. And so if we all connect our systems together, we actually all make more money because even though we're not monopolizing customer relationships, we all have equal access to a much, much larger customer base. I mean, there are billions of gamers worldwide now, and they're all spread among a vast number of different systems. Do you find that that thinking is espoused by, say, those who have been in the industry for maybe a long time and those who are coming into the industry who have grown up with more open sharing among platforms and just social media in general are more open to that, those ideas? I think you have two overlapping generations, which he came in with a bad attitude, right? The original came in with a cable TV mindset, right? Mm. They were, you know, kids of the 1980s um, and, you know, came in with the view that we should create this proprietary thing, we should lock customers in and we should build up, build up our value through this, you know, lock-in effect. Um, and go around and negotiate a special deal with each company that's a supplier, and you know you end up with a very, very balkanized system that's that's driven much more by company leverage than by principles or by fairness or open access. Um, the other generation that came in were the democratizers, you know, the Facebooks of the world, but they came in with this, you know, other bad attitude, which was the own the customer mentality. They want to be the exclusive. Uh, intermediary between customers and companies, right? And no company wants to be in that position, right? Um, and so I think co companies are now coming to the realization that, well, they're not gonna be the monopolist themselves, so it's better to have no monopolist um, and to work together and collaborate. And you know, Epic has been building the sort of system for a long time. You can log into Fortnite um, with an Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, Facebook, Google, 
Epic or Russian VX social network account. And in the future, we're going to do more. And we've been working with Ubisoft and others in an effort to integrate um, social systems and account systems so that we'd love to, you to be able to log in and play Fortnite from an Ubisoft account and have your Fortnite friends and your Ubisoft friends be shared between the different you know ecosystems. And I think over time, as this gains, uh, gains speed, more and more companies will want to be on board. Even if they're somewhat reluctant, they're just going to ultimately realize that it's better to be connected than to be on the outside. I That's a fantastic statement, and I'm sure that you know players and, and developers listening to this are going, yes, of course. Uh, and what's wonderful, Tim, is that you've always been willing to stand up and just make the hard statements, right? The things that maybe some people don't want to hear but need to hear. Have, have you always, like, since you were a kid, been willing to just say, hey, this is the way it is. I don't care what you think. I'm just telling you what you need to be thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think like, this comes from being a programmer, right? It, this, and there's the difference between programmers and marketing guys. You cannot lie to a computer. Uh, it, you know, you, can, <laughs> you have to actually tell it exactly what to do, and you have to be precise, and you can't you know, use wordplay to convince it uh, otherwise. And uh, so coming from that kind of background forces you to really think through the logical requirements for a successful business and industry. Has, so has your perspective, starting Epic as a coder, right, and having that mindset, has that influenced the culture? Do you find that, that, that belief pervades Epic? Look, this is the way it is. This, let's just be honest about things. Yeah, you know, Epic's always been driven by creatives, you know, the engineers and the artists. And, and the funny thing is I come from a coding background, but. I'm an atrociously bad artist, and so I've always had a really deep appreciation for the people who really innovate with game ideas um, and you know, people who can do the artistry and the magic. Um, and so Epic's kind of been this really interesting integration of uh, programmers and artists all together in a creative-driven company as opposed to a business uh, or finance or a you know, driven, driven company. Well, it's certainly been clear from all the, the things that you've created. I mean, I will say that Unreal, the engine itself, has been a real testament to a balance of super powerful tech with great artists and designer tools. And it seems to me from the very beginning you've had that in mind. How do we make artists' lives better? Well, thanks. You know, we've realized from the very beginning that Epic has always been a ridiculously small company compared to our competitors. Even now that we're a bigger company, we're still ridiculously small if you break it up into all of the different things that everybody's doing. Um, and so having great tools to keep the team completely productive has been our secret. Hmm. I think there are a lot of cases where like an artist at Epic is going to be twice as productive as an artist at you know, several of the other major publishers who are forced to use internal engines that don't have nearly the tools depth um, that Unreal has. And for us, it's a necessary step for success. Do you still spend a lot of time coding? Yeah, you know, I haven't checked in code for a while, but I've been pretty deeply involved in a bunch of research efforts around uh, you know, kind of the next generation of the, the technology. But yeah, I, that's, that's my passion, right? I, uh, okay, now you've piqued my interest because I know, I mean, personally, when looking ahead to the next gen, right, we all, I think as developers, we all get very excited about that. What do you want? Like what do you, when you think about the next sort of where Unreal goes after even Unreal 4, uh, where the industry goes in terms of what it's presenting on screen, what do you, what do you, what gets you really excited? Well, first of all, achieving photorealism. You know, we, we're getting darn close, um, but we need one more giant leap um, to get to the point where you can't distinguish 
Unreal Engine powered real-time graphics from movie CG graphics from the real world, um, you know, with, given sufficient time in our industry. And so we're putting a lot of effort into, um, you know, next generation technology to empower complete photorealism. And that, that involves a bunch of different areas, right? It involves uh, rendering and geometry and lighting. Um, also animation, um, photorealism is, the hardest part of it is digital humans because we've evolved with very, very, uh, you know, elaborate brain systems for recognizing faces and intent and emotion. Um, and uh, so being able to convey that realistically in games is going to be a huge challenge. Uh, and so that's, that's a huge portion of Epic's research efforts. But the other area is realizing that even if we can achieve all of those things, we haven't really succeeded if it's, to, if it's impractically expensive to actually build a photorealistic game. And so put huge efforts into um, content pipelines, both for synthetic creation of content, um, but also for real-world scanning of objects. You know, the three-lateral team that's now part of Epic is driving the Digital Humans Initiative scanning you know, humans at enormous levels of quality, both you know, facial poses and also animation. Um, the Quixel team you know, is going around with the mission of scanning all of the world's objects um, and building them into a database that anybody can access um, you know, really economically so that the barriers to content creation are not so large. And so the team can really focus on the creative elements of what's unique to their game and not focus on recreating the world's you know, one millionth tree. So, oh boy, there's so, so many questions from that. Uh, first of all, we work with Trilateral, and uh, they're a great team. And we've been really impressed with what they've been able to do. Uh, so, but going to the digital humans part, we, I think every developer who tries to work in photorealism agrees that we are still at the precipice of that uncanny valley, and that those, those micro expressions that are so difficult to convey have been elusive. So, what are, do you imagine that AI or, pattern recognition or machine learning, all those things, all those sort of related technologies are the answer to get us from this brute force approach to something that isn't, that is practical for conveying photoreal humans? That's a good question. I, it's, uh, it's not completely apparent to me how we get from where we are right now to the end game of digital humans. Mm. And it's clear that we fall short in a bunch of different areas. You know, one is the fidelity of data that we capture until very recently hasn't been high enough. The other is the fidelity of, um, at which we represent animation um, hasn't been high enough. Um, Can you give an example of that? Well, you know, they, they break down faces into a bunch of, uh, you know, keyframes and vertex poses. And it turns out to do, you know, to capture emotion, you need an enormous number of, you know, high resolution captures of poses to go from one to the other. But then you have the problem that you're really only hoping you can catch a particular facial performance accurately. Like being able to do that is within reach. If you did a, an exact performance, you wanted to play it back exactly. That's just a matter of number crunching and math. Um, but much harder problems are taking a sampling of data from a set of actors and being able to you know, portray it realistically on other characters. Um, that look different and figure out what my facial movements on my face translate to movements on your face. Mm -hmm. um, and then much more so to, uh, to be able to infer how a character should act in a you know, synthetic environment uh, given arbitrary inputs and other character interactions. Um, you know, it's clear that machine learning will play a critical role in that um, and just being able to process massive amounts of data, you know, the theory being that if you scanned millions of hours of actual human interactions and maybe you could recognize patterns and 
you know, have some impetus for playback. But the problem is that machine learning, it's, it's not enough. You need, that needs to be layered onto very sophisticated systems um, you know, for physics and locomotion and character movement. Um, you know, since it's really just at the best, it could, the best it could ever do is simulate what your neurons do in your actual brain, right? At some point, it's gonna actually translate to muscles and physics. Um, and right now we have, a, you know, the physical representation of a human is very, very basic. Um, you know, you don't have a physical simulation of muscles and sinews and fat and all of the different connective, um, you know, tissues in a human. And so all you're really doing is morphing between different keyframes. And I think one of the, one of the initiatives that we're, we've been exploring now that we have uh, an epic internal physics system, you know, the chaos physics system built into Unreal Engine, um, really figure out how to use physics to drive more sophisticated faces. But those are just the areas of technology we're working on. and. Uh, I think it's pretty clear what we need to do for the next three years, but uh, the next 10 years, I think we're just gonna have to learn as we go. Do you think that it's possible that within a decade we will see photoreal humans? I mean, truly photoreal humans where you objectively cannot distinguish between the game character and a real human in games? Or do you think we're farther away than that? I think that's within reach. Okay. Um, it's not clear that we can do that, but uh, I feel the, the pace of innovation right now makes it look like the so that could happen in that time frame. That's exciting. I mean, I haven't yeah. heard anybody say that before, and I, I feel like for the last 25 years in this industry, we've always said, sure, it's gonna be possible. But we were all sort of fooling ourselves, given there's the, there's the idea and then there's reality. Oh yeah, but I mean, you just asked the hardest problem, a question there, which is real-time photorealistic synthetic humans um, <laughs> in 10 years, and uh, you have, the question of real-time photorealism for everything but humans, absolutely without any question, within 10 years, we'll have total photorealism in real time um, and you know, content creation systems that support it productively. At that point then, do you think that players will give games enough benefit of a doubt that they don't notice the quirks that are separating the then digital humans from, say, photoreal humans? Because, I mean, we see this in games all the time. We, we, we make, in our heads, we after a few minutes, believe that that character is really talking to us. Yeah, I think Uncanny Valley is, is the hardest problem here. It's that um, a human that's slightly wrong looks much worse than a human that's just like cartoony or not even attempting to be realistic, right? And so if you look at games that really stay out of Uncanny Valley, it's always through stylization, you know, the sort of yeah. Pixar take on humans. Um, and, you know, I think... Look, creatives have a wide variety of ways of telling stories and mm -hmm. graphical themes, and you just have to choose appropriately. I would say if you're going to create a game around synthetic humans right now, you would want to not aim for photorealism. That is interesting, because a lot of us are trying to create something that, it, that approximates photoreal, but we, but we do take liberties. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you, uh, I mean, you're not trying to engage in an arbitrary conversation with a user or go on an arbitrary adventure that might involve forms mm. of locomotion that you haven't even thought through, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, that's the nice thing about game design, right? We can, uh, we can kind of cheat by designing experiences and custom tailoring them so that the things we choose to do, we do well, and the others, we just avoid. Yeah, that's a great, great point. We're in complete control. So one of the other things that you mentioned that I think is really exciting is, that you, is the database that you're building of, of just objects. Well, are these things that connect to uh, the Epic Store, are these things that you imagine are part of the Unreal Engine, just this is what you 
have access to if you're building a game with Unreal? Oh, so the Quixel team in Sweden um, joined Epic. They have the Meg Scans library um, with a huge number of realistic scanned objects, um, you know, static objects of all types, from trees to rocks to buildings. Um, and uh, we're going to be investing heavily in expanding their, the scanning capability and working with more partners and more locations around the world to scan mm -hmm. basically everything. Um, everything in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. It might take a while to get there, but you oh know, if we just had one of everything, that would be nice. It really would. I agree. Um, so, you know, the business model there is really straightforward. Um, if you're using the Unreal Engine, the library is available free for free because uh, it's just as part of the Unreal Engine license. And because you know, the standard Unreal Engine terms include a 5% um, revenue share to Epic. Right. And so our strategy there is to keep that constant and give more and more value in all the different ways we can. Uh, with the Quixel me Mega Scan Library and with other tools and things we're creating over time, um, and if you're using, an, you know, if you're making a movie or as many movie makers do, and you want to license the asset, um, or you're making a game in Unity or another engine, it's just a straightforward uh, license that's, you know, costs a one one thousandth or one ten thousandth of the cost of actually scanning objects yourself. Yeah. So it should be really economical. I, I think it's within reach of everybody. Okay, so my last my last question was fairly uneducated because I. We, we have our own engine in Insomniac and we mm -hmm. don't use Unreal. But, and this next question is also uneducated, just as a precursor. So <laughs> do you, you mentioned movies. Are movie studios going to be making a shift over to Unreal instead of using offline rendering? Oh yeah, it's happening. Um, a lot of the shots in The Mandalorian were filmed using real-time um, computer graphics backdrops in Unreal Engine. Um, you know, the, so you have actors acting in front of a giant set of LED panels. Um, which have super high fidelity, real-time rendered um, imagery that's adjusted according to the an angle that the camera's filming. So, you know, as the camera's panning around or moving and the character's moving, you know, they can film a completely dynamic shot where the director can look through the camera and see the final pixels of the entire shot. You know, it's not like filming in front of a green screen where the director's like, well, gee, I hope this will look okay. But, you know, you're actually seeing final pixels there in a lot of cases. And, you know, over the next five years, there's no question that every movie that involves computer graphics will move to real-time computer graphics. Will be produced using these virtual production pipelines, and will will be better. Will be more economical. More importantly, it'll also be better because the director is able to film final shots and see exactly what they're getting. So much of the movie. What's wrong with the movie industry now is that they film just snippets and snippets of a movie and shots on a green screen backdrop. Mm -hmm. And when they get to the very end of the process and you try to splice it all together into a working movie, they find it doesn't quite work and mm -hmm. it's too late to fix. Now you're going around trying to reposition the actors that have been recorded and it's incredibly expensive and time consuming and quality degrading. Um, whereas you know, the real time virtual production approach gives you kind of back the magical 1980s of, of movies when you could look through a camera lens and see the final final shot. Well, is, it, is the reason it doesn't work in post is because the actors haven't been reacting appropriately to the backgrounds? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. There's that. Um, and you have know, non-real-time shots are incredibly expensive to film, so reshooting it and reshooting it, um, even if you can, it's very expensive. But I mean, most importantly, the actor should be able, able to look around the set and between the backdrops and the camera and the panels in front of them and the lighting, be able to really understand the environment they're mm -hmm. in and their relation to all the other characters, which is what's really missing in green screen. Do you think we'll get to a point where at some point we're also integrating digital actors into those filming scenarios somehow? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and Epic's really focused on solving the you know, true 3D digital humans part of that. 
you know, you have another element of uh, efforts going into like, the deep fake, te fake technology, which is all just 2D image processing to splice together parts of images um, that have already been captured. But you know, the real-time 3D part of it is is going to be the future, and I, I think we have a lot of work to do right, to achieve something movie quality um, up to their standards in real time. You know, with conveying an actor's performance from you know their face onto a character's face is going to be immensely challenging. Yeah, are those the kind of challenges that you personally like to dive into when you're doing your coding work or working with the tech team? Well, I like some of them, but you know, the, the neat thing about Epic is there's so many ag experts. You know, when when you ship ship the very first Unreal game, I was I did I wrote all of the graphics code, all of the rendering engine, um, like. Probably 80% of the entire engine I just wrote myself. Whereas now we have over 200 programmers on the Unreal Engine and wow. 30 graphics programmers who each know 100 times more than I ever knew about computer graphics, and each of them knows a different 100 times. Um, and so the amount of knowledge on the team is just immense. I mean, the amount of specialization is very impressive. Yeah. Um, you know, machine and learning experts dealing with facial motion capture are completely different than machine learning experts focusing on search optimization or whatever. Um, it's all incredibly specialized. So we have a lot of different people driving different areas of it. How do you ensure that everybody is talking to each other and actually sharing what needs to be shared with 200 people on the programming team? Well, you know, that's a, that's a challenge, but Epic's approach is to concentrate a huge amount of decision-making power in the hands of the individuals building the stuff. And so, uh, you know, at a high level, we provide broad, broad direction about our goals. And when we're on a push to ship a game or release a GDC demo, we really drive people towards specific goals. But then they, they figure out how to, how to achieve it themselves and constantly add to it. And so management is, in a large sense, decentralized mm. um, throughout the engine. But then we have leads. Um, at the top level of the engine team and sub-team leads um, and production folks who help you know, coordinate and communicate and keep everybody in sync. Um, and it's worked quite well. And I think a lot of the things that we do at Epic are only possible because of the quality of the people we have in the company and we just totally fall apart if you replaced Epic engineers with average engineers. Yeah, but it works. You know, as a result, we have a, an immense ratio of you know, engineers and artists to managers what so with that in mind has has that been something you learned along the way with the right balance of say management to folks who are actually creating the content yeah that's right you know each step of growth different things break and then you have to patch them in different ways um you know to build a company that really scales um you know we found that where we've been lacking in leadership we've been really successful in bringing in subject matter experts like you know, Vlad Mustilovich leading the Digital Humans Initiative who totally understands that. Other leaders for areas like animation and you know, Juan Cunada leading the ray tracing effort, um, Ryan Karras leading a geometry effort. You know, really great individuals are the trick, right? You know, when a, there was one thing that, uh, that horrified me about 20 years ago. It's when Steve Ballmer became CEO of Microsoft and said, well, he really want to achieve in this decade is process excellence. It's like, this is how you call a company. You don't need processes, right? It's awesome people with the least amount of process that's needed to actually keep the thing from sinking. Did, so you were horrified at that point at 20, 20 years ago. Was that 
something that you codified in some way? I mean, this is ironic, right? To say you codified process excellence, or that we wouldn't have process excellence at Epic. But did you say, look, guys, this is not the way we want to do it? Yeah, you know, that's well, it's been a part of our philosophy all along. I think we've always operated in that highly decentralized way where individuals have a lot of freedom to make decisions and then they have, you know, we expect them to coordinate with others. Um, it's been a part of it all along. It's just uh, we've been working really hard over the past 10 years to maintain that as we grew because it's really easy to have a low structure company when you're 30 or 60 people. It's a lot harder when you get towards 2000 as Epic is now. Wow, I didn't realize it, it was. <laughs> did, was that growth significant over the last few years, or has it been a steady growth? Um, it was a pretty steady 30% per year until around 2017, when the opportunity of Fortnite enabled us um, to hire more people, but also everybody at that point wanted to join Epic, and so it was really easy to hire a lot of amazing luminaries who we'd like wanted for a decade and finally were able to uh, convince to come on board. And the neat thing about Fortnite is everybody either plays it uh, or they have kids that play it. Mm -hmm. right? You fall into some generation and it always works out that way. And so it's, it's really inter interesting uh, time for Epic being able to recruit so many great people. I think there's also a realization that you know, lots of, there are lots of internal engines throughout the industry, um, fewer every year, <laughs> unfortunately, and it's kind of scary. But more and more people are realizing that like the way to really, really drive the future is to be a, a premier engine company that's, uh, you know, everybody has this concern that the work they're doing now, is it going to still be important 10 years from now? Or is it going to be one of these, you know, dead branches of the evolutionary tree, right? <laughs> wow. Well, so you decentralize, decentralize decisions. And one of the biggest decisions that it seems Epic has made over the last few years is deciding to start a store. Yeah. And, and so were there a lot of arguments over whether or not one should do that? Or was that something that it was this is a no brainer for you guys? Well, so it was obvious that we should make a store and we, we really set down this path in um, 2013. Um, Epic had made a major decision that we were going to get out of AAA, like big story based game development. <laughs> you know, what you've built your company around. Um, but we, we had this very distinct impression from the history of the Gears games that we needed to get out of that and start building online games that we could release once and then improve over decades and decades. And this kind of evolved out of what we saw with Unreal Tournament, you know, the first one, that we bought a game, we shipped it, made a bunch of money, and we continued to improve it and add stuff. And, you know, the game grew and made gain popularity, but we were not making any money from it. And so we couldn't afford to do that. So we had to build another one and convince everybody to buy it again. And we got into that kind of treadmill. But we felt that, uh, you know, building games like Fortnite as, uh, you know, services we could continually improve for maybe even a decade um, or more uh, was a better path for us. And so uh, we began to build out all the different pieces of our own digital ecosystem. In the very early days, we started talking to Valve and looking at what well, if we built this and released it in PC as a Steam game. But, you know, we looked at the economics of operating a live game and between the development cost and servers and user acquisition costs and marketing, if we went to a 30% store, we realized the store would make more profit from our game than we would make ourselves. And that's horrible. How, how did the world end up in this state? It's insane. And it's a real shame because when Valve uh, pioneered the digital storefront, I mean, you really have to credit Valve. Before the iOS App Store and before Google Play and Xbox and PlayStation, it was Valve 
innovating this. In those early days, 30% was an awesome revenue sharing rate. Um, you know, you could release your own game directly through Steam and instead of a publisher taking 70% and a store taking 20% and all of this money going to all these companies who had little to do with their creative work, the developer could get 70%. But you know, scale this up to a $100 billion a year industry and suddenly you, know, you find much higher costs of game production, um, much higher costs of marketing and reaching users, and all of these other taxes imposed by Facebook and Google just to reach users with advertisements to get them into your game, and 30% is now grossly exploitative, um, and in almost all cases results in more profits to the store uh, than to the developers themselves. And that's the case across Apple and Google and, uh, and Steam and everything else. And so. We decided to build our own because that didn't work for us. Um, and as we went about it, you know, we had the first Epic Games launcher released in 2014. The first product in it was not um, a game, it was the Unreal Engine. You know, uh, so we released it, you could go to our website, you could download it, use it to update the software. And over time, we released the free version of Unreal Tournament, um, and we released Paragon, and we released Fortnite. But our intention from the very beginning was to open it up to third parties um, to make a store. but. Um, we were really quite reticent in the early days because we felt we did not have a critical mass of users or customer benefits to really succeed on our own. Um, and so it took until um, 20, uh, late 29, sorry, late 2018 to, uh, to launch. Um, yeah, and by that point, we had a huge audience with Fortnite um, with a lot of features. We built out all of the social features for Fortnite, which we were able to start opening up privately to partners. Um, and we had the ability, you know, thanks to Fortnite's um, success, to fund a bunch of really great exclusive content to the store. If we could have launched it successfully in 2014, we would have. So, you've, in today in the Dice Talk, you talked about how you talked about the practices that you just met, you just referenced with Facebook and sorry, with Google and Apple in particular. Are they taking notice? Right? Are, are they? Do you think they're actually paying attention to how you're being much more? Uh, egalitarian about the costs that you're charging for in the store. Right? Well, I assure you they've all noticed. Do you think they're going to change? I think they're going to have to change. I mean, the question is whether they change proactively because it's the right thing to do and because they want to do it on their own terms with their own software design and their own business principles and their own approach, or if they're going to wait till they're forced because, you know, under you, you cannot have a, a platform with a billion users with more than 50% market share by revenue or more than 50% market share by users um, and force people only to use your means of commerce. You're tying distribution service to a commerce monopoly, it's not fair to use that to impose a 30% tax, which is far, far beyond the cost of payment processing or any of the other actual costs of operating the store. It's unfair. You know, I think. That, what we're going to see ahead is the great unbundling. Um, and certainly my hope that Apple and Google get ahead of it and do it right and fast. Um, I, my fear is this lost decade in which ultimately they're forced to do it by all kinds of governments and antitrust suits, both private and public. Um, and the result is something much more complicated and messy than um, they could have done on their own. You know, If you have every country telling each company to do a different thing in a different way, it, the end result, and you know, you have all of these lobbyists manipulating the process all through, both 
working for the companies that the regulators are regulating or working for their competitors. It's just kind of twisted up into a, a much bigger mess. And so my hope is that Google will open up in 2020 um, and Apple will follow suit and open up in 2020 uh, or 2021. That would be great for developers and for, and for players. And speaking and yeah. speaking of players, you, you also touched on privacy and freedom of expression in your Dice Talk, which I thought was great. You were, yeah. you were mentioning, I mean, two somewhat separate topics about how some of the larger companies have willfully invaded privacy mm -hmm. and then how it's important to allow players uh, freedom, much more freedom of expression on platforms. Do you want it? So the privacy thing I thought was surprising to me because I, I don't know if we all think about that every day as we're checking into our Facebook accounts or whatever it is that we're doing. But you've made it an important part of, of Epic's perspective. Yeah, so Epic works to collect the absolute minimum amount of data we need just to operate our service. We do not do any advertising based on you know, data hoarding as Facebook or Google would do. And we absolutely minimize the third-party interactions with data. Um, and one of the most disturbing things we found um, after we shipped the first Fortnite app on iOS, um, you know, we just by default use the um, Facebook and Google plugins, um, which provide analytics and ad attribution tracking and things like this. Um, but you'd be surprised uh, how invasive those things are. Mm -hmm. And most developers who ship a mobile game probably ship, you know, ten or fifteen different plugins, which each do things that would shock them if they were fully aware of the extent of it. But you know. That's both an invasive of users' privacy, but it's also uh, directly against the interests of game developers and publishers. When you use the Google plugin and, and ship it in a game like Fortnite, that means Google is tracking all of your customers. They know exactly who they are. And when Activision wants to run an ad to Fortnite customers, they use your customer data, which you gave them for free, to target your customers, and they keep all of the money. Um, it's just an absolute sham on what's happening in a travesty that um, Companies have allowed these these services to invade their products in the way they have, um, and so we've been incredibly uh, careful to trim them all out of our services. But I think most people, even developers, still don't realize the extent to which data is being hoarded through their services, and the extent it's being used against them and against their interests. You know what's really worse now is, from a publisher point of view, is you go into the iOS App Store and you search for Fortnite and the first result you get is some competitor's game because Apple has captured the value of the Fortnite brand by selling out the search result for Fortnite to the highest bidder. Google does the same exact thing, and it's it's horrible. Um, and to you know combine that with a commerce monopoly where they demand that if you do actually finally install Fortnite despite all of the other ads that they're displaying for competitors' games in front of your own game that the user was searching for, um, they demand you use their payment processing service and they take 30%, while Visa or MasterCard will take 2.5%. It's completely out of bounds of the, the expected behavior of a moral company, and that needs to change fast. And this is the problem I, that I was really talking about in my DICE talk here, which is that we've brought up a series of precedents um, just through random accidents of history, you know, of closed platforms developing and developers or publishers being okay with this or that and customers being okay with this use of data. But when we take a step back and look at it, we've realized our industry is built on some really lousy foundations that need to change quickly. Makes sense. And I, I'm glad that you are standing up and actually saying we need to change. I mean, you guys are leading the way too, which is really refreshing. So I, I mean, thank you for sharing those perspectives. 
thanks. And yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, and it's been great having you. And I, you are you are an expert on many many topics, and I know people probably constantly have questions for you. But if they want to reach you on Twitter, what hand, what's your handle? Yeah, Tim Sweeney Epic. Feel free to um, send a love or hate in my direction. I'm used to <laughs> receiving a lot of it. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.